0: Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's Word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. Some people will do anything to get out of a little work, so... New series this morning, we have done a, a number of what we call the Art of Life series over the years that look at how we live out our lives with certain skills. And uh, we're doing that series again, only this time we're going to focus the issue around work, so work matters. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the theology of work this morning. Next week, Clary's going to talk about the value of work. And then the week after that, um, he's going to talk about work and rest. So, let's pray. Father, we want to acknowledge that your spirit is here this morning. Uh, We pray that he would be at work in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to think as you think. Uh, Challenge us, Lord. Um, As we think about this whole realm uh, of... uh, part of our life that takes so much of our time and energy, how do we frame it uh, in a way and do our work in a way that is pleasing to you? We pray that you'd help us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So I think one of the fundamental questions we should wrestle with at some point is how do we uh, integrate our world of work in our world of faith, how do the two uh, connect? And I, I think that is a challenging question. I, I think we have some ideas, uh, especially in terms of how faith should impact our work, but usually they're pretty superficial. We, we think, okay, if I'm a Christian, then in my work environment, you know, I need to be nice, uh, um, that's important. Um, I need to have personal integrity. That's important. Um, If I have an opportunity, well, then I can maybe share the gospel and evangelize. Maybe this is a a place for that. But oftentimes, you know, you can't do that at work. Um, But beyond that, we're really not sure what difference being a person of faith really makes in this world of work. Because... Work seems like its own world. It has its own value system, its own culture. I mean, business is business, right? Work is work. And what's even more difficult is to try to figure out how our work should impact our faith. I mean, I don't think we're convinced that work in and of itself has any intrinsic value for the kingdom, has any intrinsic significance in terms of our faith life. So there's this huge separation between the two. And the way we overcome the gap, I think most times, is with money, right? (laughs) We think, well, at least I can give some significance, kingdom significance to my work if I take some of what I earn, you know, and then I use that for kingdom purposes. I give it to ministry or the church or to the poor or or, or then that validates my work. But other than that, we're not sure of the connection. I'm not sure that does it. I'm not sure that's all the connection there needs to be between our work and our faith. I think there's something something more. And to be quite honest, I'm not sure the church has been very helpful for us kind of integrating our work and our faith. Um, <laughs> For one reason, pastors typically don't have a clue about this world, right? Well, it's not that we don't work. <laughs> uh, some people think we only work one day a week. Um, <laughs> but it's, we're, we're more familiar with this, this world, so we're not, we, we don't know how faith connects with our work. And oftentimes, to be honest with you, Pastors actually are a little threatened by this world because if somebody gets too involved in their work, you know, it it takes them out of our agenda, which is the church, right? They'll be less uh, involved in ministry, less involved in church activities, they're more involved in work. And it never crosses our mind that this could be their ministry because we think, no, no. In fact, we oftentimes uh, measure a person's maturity, that they're growing in their faith by increasing involvement in church and decreasing their involvement in work. You know, if, if they work less and they're more, they're at church more, involved more in small groups or ministry, and we think, oh, they're, they're maturing in their, their faith. I'm not sure that's, that's, that's true at all. I just think this is a tough deal. You know, there's a statistic by Barna that 84% of Christians who are 18 to 29 years old have no idea how the Bible relates to their field or professional life. 84%. Uh, And that's that's tough. Because work is such a huge part. So what I want to do this morning is... Just talk a little bit about work, make some key observations. And then I want us to develop kind of a theology of work. Um, I want to give you five truths that I think help us to integrate our faith and our work and our work and our faith and bring those two together. So a couple observations about work. First, we work a lot. (laughs) Even if you're not a workaholic, you spend somewhere between 40 to 60 percent of your waking hours. engaged in work, Uh, a third of your life almost, 100,000 hours in a lifetime. Um, And if that's the case, I'm not sure it's very helpful to wall off the work from your faith and treat them as two distinct things. But the problem is, second of all, we're we're really not very clear about what the purpose of work is. I, I mean, if I asked you this morning, why do you work? Probably the number one response would be, well, I like to eat and I like to pay my bills. <laughs> I work to make money. That's the, the purpose of, of work. Um, to make money so we can live. The goal is kind of a, a paycheck. And on a small scale, that works itself out for a lot of people in terms of they work during the week so they can live on the weekends. And on a larger scale, it works out You know, I work the first 65 years of my life and hopefully either I develop a business and consult and get enough money so I don't have to work or I can save enough money so when I can turn 65, uh, retire and and not work. And and really it's almost, you get this sense that people work ultimately so they don't have to work, which makes no sense. I guess it does, but it doesn't. Um, (laughs) And that kind of thinking I, I think pushes people to, can push people to one or two extremes. Um, on the one side, you have people like in the video, man. Work is a necessary evil. They, they will do anything to get out of it, even push-ups. You know, if he had to do 30 push-ups, I bet he would have made it. Uh, um, work is drudgery. The only reason you're there is for the paycheck. As some people actually see work as work a result of the fall. It wasn't part of God's plan in the first place. It's just something we have to do. We can't get out of it. Um, But then there's the other group. And for them, work isn't an evil. It it becomes an idol. Um, They wrap up their identity in their work. Their work becomes their source of security, their source of self-worth, the reason for being, and it, it, it consumes them. They try to draw life from their job. Uh, its successes, uh, they get their recognition from it. That's a dangerous place to be. Uh, Think about this. If your work is your life and it's the source of your identity, if you happen to be great at your work, then then that's awesome, right? The problem is, is if you're great at your work, you begin to think, if you're a great doctor, you begin to think, I'm a great person, because right? my identity is my work. I'm a great person. And it goes to your head. And, and you become overconfident. And, and, and you begin to think not only are you a great doctor, but you're a great leader and a great businessman and a great decision maker and a great. <laughs> and you begin to make poor decisions. If you make a lot of money because of a hunch or something, a normal person would say, oh, you know, I'm good at making a lot of money. But when your identity is wrapped up in that that thing and it becomes successful, you extend that beyond. And what happens when, when you get puffed up like that, you become insufferable. You do. And I see it happen. And it kind of plays out that way in our culture. If you make a lot of money, if you're very successful, then... Ah, uh, You must be good at everything. But think of the opposite. If you wrap your identity up in work and it doesn't go so well, oh, then it emotionally destroys you, right? Because you have nothing outside of your work and the success of your work to prop up your identity and if that is going poorly, then all of life is colored by that. Um, Benjamin Nugent, was a guy who was trying to to become a writer and kind of had tied his, his identity to his writing. And eventually, he decided he had to stop writing. He writes this. He says, when good writing was my goal, the quality of my work became the measure of my worth. The quality of my work became the measure of my worth. And he says, it made me totally unobjective I I couldn't evaluate anything anymore because I needed everything I wrote to be good because myself was at stake. So how do we navigate this? Uh, If work's not a necessary evil, but it's not supposed to be my idol, how how do we navigate that and and integrate our faith into our work? Well, I think we need a, a good theology of work. We, we need to think biblically about our work, and if we can put it in that framework well, I think it will help us to integrate our faith and keep us from seeing it either as a great evil or an idol. So let me give you five truths that I think are key to a good theology of work. The first is we are designed to work Folks, work did not come about as a result of the fall. The notion that we are to work was built into the very fabric of creation. In fact, one of the things you note when you go back to Genesis, the early chapters, chapter two, is you discover that God himself is a worker, right? By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because On it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God is a worker. And if God is a worker, then that gives dignity to work. In fact, uh, this word for work here is just the common Hebrew word for for ordinary labor. Ordinary labor. And and that's an amazing thing. Most religions would not say that their God works because that lowers him too much. But in fact, as you read through Genesis, you get this picture that God is down there playing in the mud. Look at when he creates human beings. Then the Lord God formed. Jump back. Thanks. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living beavel. It's an image of God in the mud. Tim Keller describes God as the God with dirt under his fingernails. He's down in the dirt. Um, So that is huge because if God works and is a worker, then all work has dignity and value. Good work. Good work is work that God enjoys. Now, and he, he puts that on us because what we find out in Genesis 2 is that we're created in his image. If we can go to the Thanks. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God created them, male and female, he created them. This word here, image, is the Hebrew word salem. It's sometimes translated idol, but it means a representative, And the notion is that God created us to be his representatives in this world and to do the things that he does. If he is a worker, we are to be workers. And in fact, he gives us an assignment. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This word for rule is radah, and it's this kingly kingly word. And it's, it's, this is amazing. It's as if God is saying, I am making you my co-regents in this created world so that you can rule with me. You're to oversee this, this created realm with me. Co-regents with him. And then he gets even more specific. He says, we're, we're to fill the earth and subdue it. This word is the Hebrew word kibosh. Kibosh. And I love that word because you can kind of picture it. It actually means to wrestle something to to the ground, to to wring out of it every good thing. And he's saying, I put you in the world to kibosh or, or, or to subdue the world. Now that means two things. First thing it means is that the world, the garden, wasn't absolutely perfect. It was good, but it was a place that had all kinds of potential but it still had to be wrestled with. It still had to be developed into something more than it was. And you see this pattern in Scripture. We start out with a garden, but at Revelation, we end with what? The garden becomes this city. In other words, there's this all, whole series of developments. The garden need, needs seed planted, and plants need to be cultivated, and culture needs to be formed, and art needs to be made, and cities need to be constructed, and literature needs to be... Re- that, that's subduing the earth, right? When, when my son, Max, was little, we would buy, um, we bought a couple of these uh, sets, Kinects, and they're these little plastic construction sets, and when you buy them, what you get is a box full of potential, Right? <laughs> But you have to subdue it, you have to kibosh it, you have to develop it. So we bought him this one Kinex and it was this huge plane that you built out of all these little plastic things. And you could build other things, you weren't limited to a plane. But but it had all the pieces for the plane. We thought this'll keep him busy for a month. Right? The next day, he had the plane done. You know? He he had subdued the Kinex box. Well, that's the world we have been put in. It's not, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't complete, but it had to be worked with and cultivated um, and developed into to what it could be. The world's not perfect. But the second thing to note, all this is taking place when? Before the fall. In other words, work is not a result of the fall, Work is part of the very fabric that God has designed into the creation. Work is absolutely essential to to being human. We have this notion that the purpose of life is leisure. And that is not true. Leisure isn't wrapped up so much into the design as much as work is. Leisure is preparation so we can go back and work more because work is part of the thing God designed us to do. And we have brought into this lie that the goal of life is to retire, right? Either make a lot of money so I can become independently wealthy or save enough so I don't have to work anymore and I can just be leisurely. But folks, if you retire and play golf for the rest of your life, you're going to be incredibly unhappy. There is a whole industry out there now talking about what they call the third age from, from age 55 to 75. And one of the things they're telling people is, look, the goal isn't simply to stop working. The goal, what's great about retirement is you get the opportunity to change the nature of your work. You get the opportunity to change your vocation. It's not simply an opportunity to stand back and do nothing because if you stand back and do nothing, now you're out of alignment with how God has wired you and developed you and created you because work is essential to being human. It just is. We need to rethink this whole retirement thing. Uh, not that retirement's bad, but understand it's simply an opportunity to do something different. Second, not only is, uh, are we designed to work, but second, work has a purpose beyond making money. Now, hear me clearly, there is nothing wrong with making money, nothing wrong with increasing shareholder uh, value or maximizing your return on investment, uh, nothing wrong with earning money to pay your bills, but there has to be something more has to be something more than simply financial remuneration or, or profit or economic self-interest or, or career advancement. Um, to be honest, that can't be the end goal. Because if that's the end goal, then you're never going to be satisfied. Max Dupree, his family owned The Herman Miller Company, they make office furniture, and he was a believer, and he was wrestling with this whole notion of work and the purpose of work. And at one point, he writes this uh, about money and profits in a business. He says, Profits are like breath. You breathe to live, but nobody lives to breathe. You breathe to live, but nobody lives to breathe. Profit or money is like breathing a business. A business has to make a profit. Otherwise, it will not exist. But at some point, you have to ask the question, why are we making a profit? What is it for? What is the purpose of work? What is the purpose of business? There's a good book written by a man named Jeff Van Duser, and it's entitled Why Business Matters. He's the dean of the School of Business at Seattle Pacific University. And in that book, he suggests two larger purposes for work. The first purpose he suggests that work has is what he calls service. In other words, our our work is to make an impact on the common good of the community. the common good is that shared and benef- is what is shared and beneficial for all or most of the members of the community. It's what allows a community to flourish and experience what we call shalom or peace or wholeness. Um, and somehow our work has to be connected to that if it is to have a larger purpose. I was uh, having a conversation with my daughter. Danielle. She works uh, in Wisconsin for a company called Kohler. They make uh, <laughs> bathroom fixtures and faucets and, and toilets. And um, she, she typically loves working there. It's a great company. They do some awesome stuff. But she was pretty frustrated one particular day. And she, she was trying to evaluate her life and where we fit and where she was living and put it all together. And at one point she said to me, Dad, she says, Dad, I just don't know that I want to invest my life in a company that makes toilets so people can poop. <laughs> and I laughed. And then I thought about it. Pooping's pretty important. <laughs> toilets are absolutely critical for human flourishing. Can you imagine what life would be like if we didn't have indoor plumbing? It would not be good. Uh, Her business and what she does for that business has significance because it ties to the common good. I was at a a party uh, a few weeks ago when I was really young. I uh, led a youth group, and there was one of the kids who was in my high school group at this party. <laughs> he's in his mid-50s now, and I thought, gosh, I'm getting old. But we were talking, and I asked him what, what he's been doing and where he works, and he works for Jefferson County, and he drives a school bus, and he has driven a school bus for over 20 years. And I was thinking in my mind, how do you find significance... And fulfillment in driving a school bus, and I asked him. I said, "Do you do you like what you do?" And he said, "Yeah, I, I love what I do." And his dad chimed in, and he's really good at it. And evidently, he is the guy when somebody can't doesn't show up. He takes their route because he knows all the routes and uh, doesn't get lost. And he, you know, he connects what he does to something bigger than himself. He says, "We need to get kids to school, and we need to get them there safely, and they need people." who who will take care of them and who are compassionate and and who are interested about their safety. You see, see, we tend to evaluate the significance of the job on the basis of the money it makes. But that may be a false indicator that, that really the significance of the job lies in how it impacts the greater good and helps the community flourish service is one of the great purposes of a job. And more jobs than we think uh, connect to human flourishing. Now, I want to say something, and you may disagree with me here, and I've thought about this, and I may be wrong, and you, you probably can come up and give me the exception. But, but I think this is true, right? If your job doesn't contribute to human flourishing, to the the common good, then maybe you need to find another job. If what you do simply provides you money but does so at the expense of the good of others in the community, then that's unethical. And that's unchristian. I think God designed us to work in those things that have a positive influence beyond ourselves. Dozer adds a second thing. He says, not only does service give a job purpose and meaning, but second of all, there's something about design. Work is necessary for us to fulfill our God-given design how we were made to live out our calling and our vocation and our purpose people need jobs and need to work because if they don't work and they don't have a job or 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 something they can contribute to uh, um, then they're not going to fulfill their calling in life now it doesn't mean you have to be paid for your work you can be a homemaker that works. You can be disabled and still find ways to contribute beyond yourself. You, you can find meaningful activity. Even when you're retired, you change occupations and find something beyond yourself. But, but uh, good work does both, service and design. I like First Corinthians chapter 7, what Paul writes here. He has been talking to, to, to believers who had become a believer but were married to an unbeliever and some of them thought, oh, well, I got to get out of my marriage. And Paul has been saying, no, you, you stay in your marriage. Uh, um, and then he ends with this comment, and he expands it to the rest of life. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. And catch what he's saying here. He's saying that all of us, when we become a believer, begin to, to, to understand God's providence. And under God's providence, we have an assignment and a calling that we are to, to live out, right? Here's what we typically think. We think that if you're a pastor or a missionary or involved somehow in ministry, you, you got to have a call. Now, I get people me, how were you called to ministry? Uh, And what I want to say, well, the same way you got called to be a plumber or a construction worker or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher. Paul is saying, look, all of us are assigned. All of us have to have a call. All of us have to figure out how God has wired us and what passions he's given us, what opportunities he's given. And as much as a pastor needs a calling, so does a bricklayer. So does a homemaker or a nursery worker or a restauranteur. Just as much. Because Paul says we're all assigned and we all have a calling. Um, Paul is saying when you become a believer, it, it, you don't change everything you do. You just understand your situation in work and in life differently. There's a Yale psychologist, Amy Wuzinski, who studies how we think about our job and how, how we think about our job affects us. And she says there there's three ways people look at their job. Some people see their, their their work as a job, it's a chore and a paycheck, and they live for the weekends. It's one way to see work. Some people see their work as a career, they see their job as a way to succeed and advance and get ahead and fulfill their self interest. Other people see their work as a calling. And there, it's an end in itself because it contributes to the greater good. And thus, their work takes on meaning and purpose. Now, here's the interesting thing she concluded from her survey. Whether you saw your work as a job, a career, or a calling had nothing to do with what you did. But everything to do with how you chose to frame it. They took a survey uh, of administrators, uh, office administrators, and they were able, from the survey, to place them into each category in terms of how they saw their job. A third saw their work as a job, a third saw it as a career, and a third saw it as a calling. They're all doing the same thing. Now, here's what's interesting. If you see your work as a calling, two things happen you're far more happy and satisfied in your work, and two, you're better at it. You're better at it. Because you're tying your work to something bigger, something beyond you. Uh, Dorothy Sears was a writer, and she wrote a a piece back in the 1940s uh, called Why Work? And it's a very famous uh, defense of work. And she writes this uh, This is the time of the Second World War, so you'll see that and you need to put this in that context, but she says this. She says, the modern doctrine of work, which has replaced the old biblical doctrine of work, is work is that which you do for a living. Work is that through which you make money so you can do what you really want to do. That's how we all view it. We we make money so we can then live. What is happening is that nobody today works for the sake of the thing they do. The result of the work is only a byproduct of the real aim. The real aim in work is money or status. So doctors practice medicine, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers accept briefs not because of their passion for justice, but because this is the profession that enables them to live. The reason why men found themselves so happy and satisfied in the army, remember World War II, was that for so many of them, for the very first time in their lives, they were doing something not for the sake of the pay, which was miserable, but for the sake of getting something done that really needed doing. See, all work that is good work isn't necessarily well-paying work, it's not even necessarily highly skilled work, but all work that is good work is helpful work. It it, it contributes to the fabric of shalom and flourishing in the kingdom. So if you're a a pilot and you're a Christian, how, how does a Christian pilot operate? Being a Christian pilot, does that mean when you get on uh, the flight, you hand out tracks to all the passengers? And what does, that, what does it mean to be a Christian pilot? A Christian pilot. You know what he does? He lands the plane. And good Christian pilots land the plane so that it can take off again. That's being a Christian pilot. Do your work and do it well, and see how it contributes. Beyond you, work has dignity. So third, biblical truth. Not only are we designed for work and work has a purpose beyond money, but there is no division between the secular and the sacred. By default, this is what we do. We we divide life into those two segments. And over here on the sacred side is the spiritual stuff. You know, reading our Bible, evangelizing, participating in ministry, going to church, all that that spiritual stuff. And and then, you know, in the secular side is all the rest of life. And and we kind of, well, we kind of compartmentalize our lives. And there's really two reasons we do that. Or have a tendency to do that. One is historical. It came out of the monastic movement. Uh, Years ago, uh, the church was in charge and in control. And they wanted to maintain their control. And one of the ways they maintained their control was they basically taught people that if you wanted to do something significant or have meaning, then it had to be connected to the church and their structure. They told people, you know, be a priest or be a monk. Uh, uh, do the spiritual thing, and that was part of the way they kept control. And if you, you know, if you were a baker or a farmer, or that just didn't have the significance uh, of, you know, doing something for the for the kingdom, which was them. We still think that way. We tell people if you you really want to live a significant life, go into ministry or become a missionary or. And what we add to that, part of the reason we think that is what I call lifeboat theology. It's this notion, and this is what we've taught people, is that the world is going to be totally destroyed, right? Um, The world is like the Titanic, and it's hit the iceberg of sin, and the world is sinking and going to hell in a handbag, and the only thing we can do is get people off the boat and into the lifeboats. And I have people tell me this, you know, the only thing that lasts for eternity is the Bible and people. So if you get involved in anything beyond the Bible and people, it, it's just gonna burn. Now, if you think that, then what you're, you're doing, if it's all destroyed, then, then you've negated all of life. All of life ultimately has no significance or meaning because it doesn't last into eternity. And not only is that bad theology, but it's so far from what the Bible teaches. We don't have time to go into it this morning. But if you go into Scripture, you discover that the world isn't destroyed. It's refined by fire. It's an image in First Peter of gold being smelted in fire. So what its true elements are revealed. The world's not destroyed. It's purified. In fact, in the Old Testament, God promises he will never destroy the world again. Now, if that's true, then there's a continuity between this world and the world is, that is to come. In, in fact, I, I think the best way to think about it is that not only are we resurrected, but the creation itself is resurrected. When you look at Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, there's a continuity between what was and what he is now. And that will be true for creation. I happen to believe that that, uh, in the new creation or the renewed creation or the restored creation, there'll be great literature. You know, literature that was written in this realm. Great music, great art, great plumbing, (laughs) good works, things we do for the kingdom, they, they last beyond themselves and they reach into eternity and have significance there. There just is not a separation between that which is spiritual and that which is secular. Do you know in the Old Testament, there's no word for spiritual because all of life was integrated. It was all simply life. There was no compartmentalization. If you you went up to Jesus and asked Jesus, Jesus, how's your spiritual life? He would have looked at you and said, what the what the heck are you talking about? Spiritual, we ask the person that and what we're really inquiring about is their spiritual discipline. Do you read your Bible? Do you go to church? You know, that's, we, that's how we report on the quality of our spiritual life. <laughs> Not in scripture. There was, those things, reading your Bible, going to church, all that stuff, those were just means to living life. And if you want to know How your spiritual life is going, look at your life because that's your spiritual life. It's all integrated as a whole. Are you loving people? Are you compassionate? Are you being obedient? Are you you living for the kingdom? It's all integrated as one. There is no activity that you will participate in today or this week that isn't connected spiritually. Doesn't have a spiritual dimension to it. All life is seamless. And that means that God values all work that impacts the common good. Look, there's as much significance in making a good toilet as there is in preaching a good sermon. The world needs both. You're not buying it. Let me talk about toilets for a moment. There's a doctor giving a lecture, and he was saying the reason people live so long that you know we live longer than they used to has nothing to do with modern medicine. And has everything to do with sanitation and treatment of sewage. I told you, toilets are more important than you think they are. It's why we all don't die of cholera. Building a good toilet is as important as preaching a good sermon. All work has dignity and significance if it contributes to the kingdom and the common good. Two more quick points. Um, work is impacted by the fall it would be easy to walk away and think oh work is just wonderful and the reality is it's not always let's look at Genesis chapter 3 to Adam he said this is after the fall and God is telling the consequences of their sin he said to Adam because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you you must not eat from it cursed is the ground because of you Through painful toil you will eat from it. All the days of your life it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. What was cursed? What was cursed? Right, the ground, it wasn't work. Now work became more difficult because the ground was cursed but the work wasn't cursed. The work became harder. And it puts us in this tension that now we will have painful toil. Work at times will be frustrating, irritating. Uh, You know, there's thorns and thistles, the sweat of our brow. There's blisters on your hands. Sometimes there's sore backs and icy hot and ibuprofen and workers comp and medical insurance. And those moments where you say, I need a vacation. That all comes because the ground is cursed. But it's not the work that's cursed. In fact, we, we live in this tension. On the one hand, work is frustrating, but on the other hand, work is fulfilling, right? He says, uh, um, "You will eat the plants of the field." He's a gardener, and the gardening, you know, represents the rest of all culture-making in the society. At times will be incredible frustration, but at times there'll be incredible fulfillment. That's the nature of work. Okay, last thing. Last thing. All work is to be a form of worship. I'm going to teach you a word, and that word is going to to take care of this dilemma. It integrates both our faith and our work. And the work is the word avodah. Say that with me, avodah, again, avodah. This is a fascinating word. It's a word that used in Genesis chapter 215 that describes Adam cultivating the garden. It it is a word that is used in Exodus chapter one, verse 14, and it describes the backbreaking work of the children of Israel making bricks as their slaves in Egypt. It is a word that is used of the artisans who are building uh, the tabernacle. You know, these gifted, skillful artists who are building the tabernacle in Exodus 35. It is a word that is used uh, of this incredibly fine craftsmanship of these guys who, who are linen workers as they uh, make linen for the temple in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 21. It is also used by Solomon as he instructs the priests and the Levites, those are the religious people in that culture regarding their service in leading worship and praise of God in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, 14. In other words, Avadah is used both for work and for worship. Throughout the scriptures it means both work in worship. You see, as God designed it, our work, properly understood and properly executed, is to be a form of worship. I like what Eric Liddell's father said. Eric, uh, Eric Liddell is the guy from Cherry to Father. His dad said this He says, You can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you peel it to perfection. A spud is a potato. You know. work is really to be a form of worship that brings honor to glory and God and if we understand suddenly our faith and our work become a seamless whole there's no separation let me end with this Colossians chapter 3 verses 23 through 24 whatever you do work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord Not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Understand this, that this is written to slaves. And Paul's saying, even if you're a slave, you can live out your slavery in a way that it becomes worship. Because you are working for an audience of one. Avoda. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this is easy to say but difficult to do to take our work and make it worship of you, but we pray that by the power of your spirit and the gift of your son that we would be enabled to live such lives that uh, we bring you honor in all we do, including our work. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.